0: there, but we're in week four of our series called good together. And I hope you've been enjoying the series and getting some great things out of it. I told you right at the outset that, uh, when you come to the series, you got to commit to coming all five weeks. And I just wanted to tell you've done very well. Many of you have committed to come. I'm proud of you. You should give yourself a pat on the back, a round of applause for that. I've noticed. And, uh, and I, I know even, even with, um, with doing that, uh, some of you who've had to miss because of different uh, scheduling things, you've made it a point to go online and catch the message on YouTube or a podcast or Spotify or where, wherever you get that. And, uh, so I'm proud of you for that. And I also want to acknowledge that every week there's new people that are coming in right now today. We have new people here for the first time watching online. There's people who are joining us for the first time. In fact, can we just give a big welcome, uh, a round of applause for everybody who's here for the first time. We're so glad you're here recognize there's a lot of places you could be, but you're here today. I believe God is going to speak to you because you're here and because there's new people here, I just want to real quickly recap where we've been. So the first week we started by looking at the first relationship in the Bible. And that first relationship was not Adam and Eve. First relationship was Adam and God. The reason we looked at that is because it's so important to understand that relationship because it orders and informs the rest of our relationships. And we said the most important relationship we can have is our relationship with God. we got to make sure that's right. And by extension of that, our relationship with his church, because I can't stress this enough. The only relationship on earth that we will still have in heaven is our relationship with other believers. So we got to make sure we're prioritizing our relationship with God and our relationship with his church. And we talked about some of that. Then the second week we dealt with some of the lies in our relationships. I wanted to confront this lie that is often said when it comes to relationships, just follow your heart because we understand how the heart is deceitful. The, the heart is untrustworthy. There's these lies that our heart tells us that will set us up for failure and set us up for a heartache. The heart will tell you, you just need to be happy. The, the heart will tell you, just be true to yourself. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm schizophrenic. So sometimes like what I want is in conflict with itself. And so we dealt with some of those lies. Last week, my Wife gave a great message on insecurity. Very proud of her for that, and I, I listened to it online. I wasn't here. It was great and so important because uh, the the greatest enemy to our relationships is inside of us, not another person. And the truth is, if you want to end up together and happy, you got to start out single and secure. So she talked about that. That was great. Well, I want to continue in this series where we're discovering God's plan for our relationships. And I'm going to give you a message today that I believe is going to be very helpful. Uh, and if I'm honest, I think it's also going to be very challenging. And I want to say up front, I have a lot to say. I thought I was going to turn this into a series. I shrunk it to a sermon. I maybe should have made it a series. I might go a little long today. Just, I'm going to ask you to hang with me. Um, it's going to be very challenging and I want to acknowledge that I'm making a few assumptions in the room when I say that now, I've realized one of the most dangerous things you can do in a relationship is to make an assumption. So let me clarify what I mean by that. And you can tell me whether or not that this is true, but I think there's really three kinds of people in the room. Uh, I think there's one kind of type of person who's here, uh, you're here because you love God. What I mean by that is you're a Christian, you know, that one of the primary purposes of a Christian is worship. And so you come to church. To worship. You come because you've got something to give. You're going to give God your attention, your, your energy. You're, you're going to bring your praise, your worship, your resource. You're here because you love God. You want to worship God. I think there's another kind of person who's here and you're here because uh, you want to know what the Bible says. You know that part of coming to church is we're going to open up the Bible. We're going to teach the Bible. And uh, you, you want to know what the Bible says. Now, if this is you, you might be a Christian. You might not be a Christian. Either one, But you know that you you want to know what the Bible says, how to live according to the Bible, and you might not agree with it. You might not believe it. But at the end of it, you're you're going to at least know what the Bible says. If you're a Christian, you're going to apply it to your life. If you're not a Christian, at least you're going to know. And and then there's another type of person that's here and you're the, the person who's come in with a need. And if that's you, that's not a bad thing. I'm glad you're here. Church is a place where we get our needs met. And I don't know what your need is. Maybe you need a touch from God today. Maybe you need some hope. Maybe you need an answer to a problem. Maybe you need some direction. Maybe you need some community. I don't know what your need is, but I do know this, that when you come to church, this is a place we can get your needs met. God is a meter of our needs. And so just be encouraged. If that's you, you're going to get your needs met. If you're here, you're looking for an answer to a problem. I'm going to give you a solution today. If you're here in, the, in that second group because you're looking for some, for, for some information on what the Bible says, I'm going to give you an explanation today. You're going to walk out of here with, with what you need. But if you're in that, that first group, the, the ones who love God, you're, you're the ones that I actually think this is going to be the most challenging for. And the reason I say that is because I've often found we love God on our terms. This is why our relationships are dysfunctional. Because we like what our relationships do for us, not what they require of us. And th- there's a good chance that this sermon is going to require something of you. I say that because this sermon requires something of me. And the book that we're going to study together addresses this very tension of the requirements of love and relationships. I want us to look together at the book of, of 1 John. Now, as much as I want to jump right in and start reading to you, I got to give you some context on this book because even calling it a book is a little bit of a misnomer. It's really a letter. It's a letter written by the apostle John. John was a disciple of Jesus and uh, John's writing this letter. The, the circumstance that prompt this letter is because there is a group of Christians that he cares about very, very much who have been fractured by a heresy. Now, heresy is not a word we throw around a lot. I I get that. You might be intimidated by that word. You might not know what it means, but heresy simply put, uh, it's a belief that is contrary to the Bible, contrary to the whole counsel of God. It's an unbiblical belief. It's a false teaching, we might say. The technical term is unorthodox, meaning that it is counter- to the way of Christ. It is counter to the historic Christian tradition. And you don't need to get wrapped up on that. I'm just trying to say essentially what happened in this church, this group of Christians that he cares about, uh, they're professing and holding a belief that if maintained, it pulls people away from the truth. And, and that's exactly what happened. You can read it in the book. You might have to read it for yourself in first John, but the, the church has been decimated and depleted because people in the church who had believed this lie have now left the faith. And so that's why John writes this letter. And we see his purpose in the very beginning of the book. It's in first John one, I'm going to start in verse three. It says this life we have seen and heard what life he's talking about the life of Christ, he's talking about Jesus he says, and he's a disciple saying, ah, we've seen this. We, we, we know him. We, we saw him. We heard him. And we're reporting about it to you also so that you, too, can have a relationship with us. Our relationship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, what we see right at the offset is that this book is about relationship. John's writing, he uses words like we... He uses words like us, and he says, the reason I'm writing this letter is because I want us in relationship together. I I, I want us connected. I I want us to share in this life that we have. Understand, this life that we have, it's our relationship with God. It's our connection to God, and we want to be connected with you. So I, I want to talk to you about how to be connected with God. And to do that, I have to confront some ideas that are pulling people away. Now, few people are better suited to talk to us about love and relationships than John, because John is known as the apostle of love. Who here has heard of the apostle of love heard of the gangster of love <laughs> space cowboy. I don't know about the apostle of love, the love apostle. I know the love doctor. But the apostle of love, that's John. Why is he the apostle of love? Well, for a few reasons. One, in his gospel, John, he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. That's John. Gave that title to himself. It's a good one. Much of his writing is about, it's like if one of my kids wrote wrote a biography about their parents, like I was dad's favorite. It's like they just chose it. But. Much of his writing is about love. He writes about our love for Christ, our love for God, Christ's love for us, the love for the church, love for each other as Christians. He writes a lot about love. In fact, the word love John uses more than any other writer in his gospel. It appears 57 times in this letter that we're looking at first, John, it appears 51 times. The guy had a thing for love. But John, you got to know this. He was a lover of truth more than he was a lover of anything else. And I bring that up because I don't want you to get the idea that he was soft. In some ways, John was the very opposite of what you might think. John, when we first meet him in the Gospels, the portrait that we get is that he is opinionated, is that he is competitive and that he is unrelenting. (laughs) His letters and his writings, what we see is that John is, is very bold his writing is very direct. He speaks authoritatively. He's committed to absolutes. John speaks in the black and white. He doesn't pull any punches. That's why when we first meet him in the Gospels, he's not the apostle of love. He's called, you might know this if you're a Bible nerd, the son of thunder. Subtitle for this message, love and thunder. I almost went there, but he's the original love and thunder. Somebody took that title though. So what's interesting is how John writes though, because he's, he's, he's writing twofold. He's writing this letter one to comfort believers, but to confront wrong beliefs and like he's so black and white on the issue he's addressing. But what strikes me is that while he's black and white. He's also very gentle. He calls his audience, his children. He calls his, his audience, his friends, his dear ones, his beloved, the people that he loves, which side note, that's how I feel about you. It is. It's how I feel about you. You got to know this, that if I'm your pastor, I pray for you every day. I might not text you every day, but you are on my mind every day and I'm praying for you every day. And so he loves these people, but he has to confront this heresy and he has to confront this wrong belief. And this heresy that he's confronting is an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. I know I'm throwing a lot of big words at you, but understandable. You might not be familiar with Gnosticism. You are familiar with its characteristics. This is what Gnosticism is and what he's addressing. Gnostics were people who claim to have an elevated knowledge. They claim to understand a higher truth. Gnostics, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And the knowledge that the Gnostics claim to have didn't come from scripture, didn't come from the Bible. It came from a higher plane of experience. The, the Gnostics viewed themselves as enlightened, privileged people because they had a, a more enlightened perspective than everybody else. And so John, he's dealing with these different deceptions that have pulled people away. deceptions, coming from people claiming to have some secret knowledge. And he gives the church, he's writing to a test so that they can know whether or not they're in right relationship with God. How many of you like tests? Has anybody ever taken those love tests? You know, like 12 questions to know whether your relationship's going to make it. I think it's in the back of Cosmo. I'm not saying I've read it, but... (laughs) You know, I think on Facebook, they got their little, you know, how to know your relationship with that, all these little love tests. Well, John gives a very simple test to know whether you're in right relationship with God. You're going to love it. It's in 1 John 2, verses 3. He says, we are sure that we know Christ if we obey his commandments. I mean, that's pretty black and white. says, so you want to know if you're in right relationship with God? Let me spell it out for you. We know <laughs> that we know Christ if we obey his commandments goes on verse four. The person who says I know him, but doesn't obey his commandments is a liar. I thought you were supposed to be the apostle of love, man. This is kind of harsh. Since the truth isn't in that person, but whoever obeys what Christ says is the kind of person in whom God's love is perfected. That's how we know we're in Christ. Those who say that they live in him must live the same way that he lived. In other words, (laughs) he's saying that if you say you love God, if you say you have a relationship with God, you have to obey what he says because, and this is the first thing I want you to write down, that love is not love without standards. Love is not love without standards. Now I realize that this is my first point and I haven't even given you the title yet of my sermon and all the note takers are frustrated because you started taking notes. You're like, I don't even know what to call this thing. Is this just part four and that's not the way we do things, but understand I can't give you my title until I get to my main text and I can't get to my main text until you first understand this truth that love is not love without standards. That's why he writes just a few verses later. This is the main text. Don't love the world and what it offers, because those who love the world don't have the Father's love in him. Now, might be kind of confusing because he says, Don't love the world. And you might not know much of the Bible. You think, I know John three sixteen. And doesn't that say God so loved the world? This is confusing to me. Okay. And what, what God obviously loves the people of the world. But what John is trying to illustrate is that there is a love of the world that is incompatible with the love of God. In other words, John is saying it, it's possible to have a love that doesn't reflect God's love. He's saying that there, in other words, there are times. When what we call love isn't really love. And this is where I want to give you the title of my message. If you're taking notes, the title of this message is when love isn't love. When love isn't love. Now let's be honest. This idea that love has standards, that love has qualifications, that love has criteria, is not a hard concept to comprehend. All of us would say that there are things that we call love that are not really love. There are things that we consider love that other people would not consider love. I can tell you're not with me. Let me give you an example. If I meet somebody who just got a puppy and they, you know, got this puppy, adopted this puppy and they say, man, I've really, They're taking care of this puppy and they say, I love this puppy. And I'd say, I know how you feel. I love pizza. (laughs) They would slap me and say, what are you freaking talking about? You're talking about pizza. I'm talking about a puppy, like a a living creature that can respond to affection. And I would say, you don't know what kind of pizza I'm talking about, but (laughs) they say, what you're calling love is not what I mean when I say love. Okay. Let's try again. Let's say that same puppy person goes to someone the person who just got a puppy goes to someone who just had a baby and they go to the person who just had a baby and say, Oh, what's it like? You've got a baby. He said, Oh man, I just, I love this little person so much. And they would say, I know how you feel. I have a puppy. (laughs) That new parent is going to slap the puppy person. And I know I've already made all the dog moms mad and puppy parents upset. I promise you, this is the least spicy thing I'm going to say in the sermon. (laughs) You're going to say, that's not love. That's not what I mean when I say love. We're talking about two different kinds of love here. Okay. I'm I'm talking about love between people. Romantic love. Okay, I got you now. Because, see, this is the problem. Like, Marissa doesn't get it. Like, she tells everybody that she was my first girlfriend. What she doesn't know is I had lots of girlfriends. She refuses to acknowledge this statement. Brooke, Ashley, Alicia. I realize saying their names out loud sounds like they all joined a sorority and are enjoying pumpkin spice lattes right now. But I say it it sounds because I don't know what they ended up doing because that was when I was 14 (laughs) and that's why Marissa would say that's not love that there's a different kind of love to which I would agree when you're 13 and when you're 30. All right. Okay. We're talking pastor about romantic committed relationship. That's what we're trying to say. Relationships, emotionally fulfilling. Okay. This is hypothetical, but if I say I love Marissa and I do, and I would do anything for her and I would, and I display that affection, and this is hypothetical, but then you discover that I'm abusing her verbally, physically, whatever you would say, Hey, I know what you said, but that's not love because if you loved her, You wouldn't do that. So I'm just trying to present this idea that we all have definitions of what we mean when we say love and we all have standards of what counts for love and what qualifies for love. So it's not a controversial statement to say that love is not love without standards yet. There is this phrase in our culture and it's a heresy. It says, love is love. That implies that all love is equally valid and all love should be equally celebrated. And just as John, the apostle wrote to a church he cared for that had been deceived and damaged by a wrong belief, I want to firmly but lovingly challenge this idea that love is love. Now, in order to do this, I need to help you understand what the world teaches because the world teaches us three things. First one is this, that all morals are personal. That all truth is experiential and that all ethics are cultural. Let me say that again. The world teaches us that all morals are personal. All truth is experiential and all ethics are cultural. And this is one of the greatest contradictions in our society today, because culture will say that all morality is relative and yet demand moral behavior. In other words, we're going to hold this idea that all morality is relative, but hold love as our highest virtue. And it looks like this. Well, I've got my beliefs. I'm just not going to judge somebody else's because everybody has their own truth. Everybody has their own morals. Everybody has their own ethics. And when you believe that the only act that is still a sin with that worldview is to disagree with someone because that would be unloving after all love is love. This is a problem for a Christian. Because it's the antithesis of what we believe. Let me tell you what Christians believe. Christians believe that morals are not just personal. Christians believe that truth is not just experiential. Christians believe that ethics are not just cultural. We believe that morality is transcendent, that it comes from God. Because it comes from God, it means we believe it can be judged. We believe that truth is found in God's word, that your experiences aren't just truth. Yes, it happens. Yes. I acknowledge you feel that way, but we also recognize feelings are fallible. We believe that ethics are not just cultural, that just because something's cultural doesn't make it right or good. And that just because something is countercultural doesn't make it wrong or bad. We believe the gospel aims our ethics. Our ethics don't aim the gospel. Even though what I'm saying maybe sounds different than something that you've heard, it's really not controversial because we've already established that all of us have a standard and a criteria for how we define love. All of us believe there should be standards. We just argue over who gets to define them. So maybe that's why John wrote, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. This isn't something new. Instead, I'm writing you one you've heard before. You've had it since the beginning. But what I'm writing, it might as well be a new command. Because it's not popular. He's saying this truth was shown in how Jesus lived. It's even evidenced by the way you live. As Christians, we believe that God gets to set the standard. And even though what John was saying to them wasn't necessarily easy to hear, he said it to them anyway because he knew this is the second thing, that love is not love without truth. Love is not love without truth. The belief of the world is if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me. Let me show you something scripture says. Proverbs 27.5 says it's better to correct someone openly than to have love and not show it. What does that mean? This means scripture puts correction in the same category that most of us put affirmation. It, It also means that if you don't Speak truth. If you don't correct a person that you care about, then you actually don't care. That's what I'm saying. It's better to correct someone openly than to have love and not show it. Proverbs 27 6, the next verse says this Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Let me, I, I'm speaking in foundational things here. Let me get real practical to your relationships. Tell you, tell you this, not everybody who is good to you is good for you. Not everybody who kisses you with compliments is actually being kind. Telling you something you want to hear might be nice, but it's not always helpful. Telling someone what they need to hear. That's helpful. It's like if I go to the doctor because I've got this pain in my stomach and I go and he scans me and all this kind of stuff and I see him, he's like, man, you have a six pack. (laughs) Like, I might tip him on the spot. (laughs) It's the best compliment a person can give me. But if the problem is my appendix is about to rupture and he doesn't tell me that and he doesn't cut me open, and he doesn't have surgery. He's not loving. It's not helping me. I'll give you a personal example. In my house, Pippa, my youngest daughter, she's on the iPad a lot. And the other day this happened, but really it happens every day. And the other day she was on the iPad, I said, hey, you've been on there enough. It's time to turn it off. We set a timer. Timer's up. Took the iPad away, shut it down. She started bawling. Just bawling. And kind of is like one of those like real pitiful cries, like just kind of like, like you crushed her spirit. And I was like, why why are you crying? She said, because you don't love me. <laughs> I said, why do I not love you? Because you won't let me have the iPad. (laughs) I said, girl, you're going to have to learn this lesson real quick in life. But us having a disagreement about what you should do right now is not interchangeable with a lack of love for you. See, sometimes like Pippa, we're very immature in our thinking. We think that God's love means we should have what we want. People have told me before, and if God didn't want me to have it, why would I have this desire? And can I tell you? It's <laughs> exactly what John is saying. He says there are some desires that are in us that are contrary to the love of God. We talked about this the first week. Not everything that's in me is good, not everything that's in me is pure. I know there's some unholy stuff in me. Can I be real with you? <laughs> I I know not everything that's in me is good. That's why I think it's helpful to make a distinction between desire and behavior. Man, I'm glad God doesn't judge me for every wrong desire that I have. Sometimes I've got some unholy desires. Sometimes I've got some some desires that are ungodly. And sometimes I want to cuss people out. I don't. But I want to sometimes I want to lay hands on somebody and I don't mean in the biblical way, but I don't, there's a difference between desire and behavior. That's why John emphasizes obedience. In fact, what I noticed in my relationship with Pippa is that sometimes her definition of love is going to be the exact opposite of my definition of love. Because I love you, I'm going to put up some boundaries. Because I love you, I'm going to set some parameters. I'm going to set some limits on your preferences. Because here's the third thing. Love is not love without boundaries. It's not. Every week in this series that I've been preaching, I've tried to look back to Genesis it's so important that we understand Genesis. I've looked back at it because well, it's the theme verse for this series calling this good together, Genesis 2:18 says it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. It is good for us to be together. But as I was reviewing it this week, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before. I wonder if you noticed it because Genesis 2:18 says the Lord God said, "It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who's right for him." But I wonder if you noticed what it says Before this in verse 17, what we discover is that God put man in the garden and he told him that there's a tree that you're not supposed to touch. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, except this one. If you touch, eat this one, touch this one, you're going to die. And then in the next verse, he gives him Eve. So what can we take from that? That God sets boundaries before He gives blessings. Wow. Love is a blessing. Relationships are a blessing. But God knows if He gives you a blessing and doesn't set any boundaries, it won't be a blessing anymore. Now, all of us believe that there should be boundaries because every one of us in this church knows somebody who has been the victim of someone else who has crossed a relational boundary that they shouldn't have. It's not that any of us think there shouldn't be boundaries. We just want to define what they are. So what we say is, you know, love is love. I mean, after all, pastor, God is love. So shouldn't we just be like God? And to that, I would say, I agree. We should be like God. The only problem is this. We've made our definition of love, God, instead of making God our definition of love. You know, that verse, God is love. It gets quoted a lot. It's actually in first John. I wanted to give it to you, but I decided it's going to be better for you just to read this book on your own. It's going to take you five minutes and find it for yourself. God is love. I think we should be like God. In fact, <laughs> that verse, God is love, it only appears twice in all the scripture, that phrase, God is love. And it's found in first John, two places right next to each other. God is love. But there, there's actually something else God is too. If we're going to be like God, why don't we try this one? God is holy. You know, that shows up in the Bible 400 times, over 400 times. So, if we're going to be like God, maybe our love should look holy. Holy means set apart. Holy means different, distinguished. If we're going to love like God, then, then maybe our love should look a little different. And the thing is, we don't even have to wonder what it should look like. The Bible tells us. It's right in this book. It's the other John three sixteen. That's what it says. First John three sixteen. This. Is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, that's, it's talking about spiritual family. It's talking about Christians. You got to remember, John is writing this book so that we can have relationship with each other. He's saying, Look, I want us to be in relationship. I want us to be in community, spiritual community, common unity. I I want us to be connected. I I want us connected with each other because we're connected to God. And he's saying, in order to do that, this is what love is. You got to die. You have real love is dying to yourself, dying to your preferences, dying to your inclinations, dying to what seems right to you. Not only is this real love something that's even more significant than that. And I want to tell you what this is. Honestly, if I can be candid, I I think in the church, we've done a disservice many times to a lot of people by how we've communicated love and relationships. And if you've been on the wrong end of this, I would apologize. I would say, man, I'm, I'm sorry that we've presented this wrong. I, I think sometimes in church we've done a disservice. How we talk about love, how we talk about relationships, how we talk about marriage and i understand we believe in marriage. I'm going to talk about marriage next week. I'm asking Marissa if she'll help me out with it. We're going to, I want to talk about a controversial subject. in marriage it is going to be very spicy and uh, is going to be one you'll remember, I promise you, but. Sometimes in church, we talk about marriage, like it's the ultimate expression of love. I've heard that said from a pulpit, that marriage is the ultimate expression of love. I just gotta tell you, it's not. Marriage is not the ultimate expression of love. And the good news is that means that the ultimate expression of love is available to all of us. It's available to you regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your relationship status, married, single, anything in between, regardless, rich or poor. And I'm not even gonna leave you in suspense as to what it is. You wanna know what the ultimate expression of love is? Jesus tells us. It's found in John's gospel. John chapter 15. This is what he says. The greatest love is shown when a person lays down his life for his friends. See, love is experienced when it's expressed. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. And every single one of us have the opportunity to both experience and express the greatest love by laying down our preferences at the foot of the cross and say, God, I've got got some desires in me that are unhealthy. God, I've got some preferences that are contrary to your standards. I've got some feelings that go against your truth. I've got some things in me that I know are outside your boundaries. But God, I'm going to lay those things down because I love you. That's the greatest kind of love that there is. The next thing Jesus says, and you're my friends, if you obey.